You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience here at Conservative Review on Westwood One Podcast Network. And it is another exciting new week. Monday, October 15th. We are already halfway through the month. Just three weeks until the biggest election of your lifetime, as every election is. And the world will hinge on this election. Um, And the divergence of outcomes is just unimaginable based on the two scenarios. Well, not really. But anyway, um, this is your... Actually, your one-stop shop for all your information on news and policy, but also your respite from the false dichotomies that you hear on other conservative media, uh, much less the liberal media, as well as your your one safe space from the substance-free zone that has taken over every aspect of our political system. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Today, it, it, the week started off quiet again, and I couldn't believe it. We're all talking about the height of the cheekbones on El- Senator Elizabeth Warren and her DNA test that she released to show what percentage Native American blood, Indian blood, she has inside of her. And this is what we're debating. And I'm saying to myself, dude, I care more about what percentage of Elizabeth Warren's policies is my movement and the party that supposedly represents them adopting much more than what percentage of Indian blood is in her body? But that's what happens when you measure conservatism by your daily responding to the left rather than your daily adherence and per pursuit of your own unfixed, unrelative views. And that's what we're going to continue to do today. Um, Because it is a quieter start to the week, uh, you know, I finally feel like we have time to have a deeper discussion on healthcare that I really wanted to have and discuss with you the narrative on healthcare missing from the campaign trail, missing from GOP campaigns. It's such an important issue. And Republicans are all on defense. It's probably the most remarkable story, in my mind, policy-wise, of the last two years that Republicans have essentially adopted Obamacare. They've essentially – it's not just, oh, well, we didn't have the votes. We kind of moved on to other issues because we don't have the votes. They, they have adopted the core philosophy behind the meat and potatoes of Obamacare. That we need to make insurance, not just make insurance own healthcare and ha- make healthcare all about insurance, but make insurance actuarially insolvent to say that because there is people with pre existing conditions, which, as we're going to discuss later, is a creation, is a problem created by these very policies in the first place, we therefore must double down on the policies of government control. And creating monopolies for a private sector 
that's not so private um, to deal with that. It's all over the campaign trail. This, I believe, will be one of the forgotten, um, <clears throat> one of the forgotten postmortems of the election. You know, most polls have healthcare in the top three, and if it's you know if it's below a certain issue, it's usually below immigration, which of course Republicans fail to properly utilize. And Democrats. We've allowed Democrats to seize the offense on this. We've stopped talking about the fact that doctors are getting crushed and they're retiring at um, record paces and the fact that the Medicaid expansion created a monopoly with mergers that we're going to discuss uh, in a minute, just driving up the cost of health care, driving out innovation, destroying private practice, and of course, driving up premiums. We don't say any of this. Instead, we allow the Democrats to blame us for what they put in place. And Republicans are instead like, oh, no, no, no. I mean, all every one of these Senate candidates, Lou Barletta in Pennsylvania, Josh Hawley in Missouri, um, very sadly, Scott Walker, that's a governor's race, not a Senate race, but Scott Walker in um, Wisconsin. I mean, it is just one after another. They're putting out ads. No, no, no. I I, I care about covering pre-existing conditions just as much as you do. I mean, really, are you ever going to win an election like that? I mean, saying the same thing as the other side, but being a little bit more insincere and on defense about it? I mean, forget it. It's just never going to work. Never going to work. But he, but here's where we are on health care. It's just really shocking to watch Republicans unravel on it, and none of our people want to talk about that. It's amazing. I don't understand how... <laughs> Again, this is what I say. I mean, some of my colleagues, and I know I've been on a kick the last couple of weeks criticizing conservative media for actually not really being conservative at all, but the fact that our side, so to speak, and I don't just mean, you know, two people at the fringe: uh, Lisa Murkowski, uh, Susan Collins, John Kasich. I mean, the core of Republicans, the Mitch McConnell type of Republicans, adopting all of this, and we warned about this. This is why we launched so many primary challenges in 2014 because we knew this was coming. It just amazes me how this is overlooked. You know, Scott Walker, my wife is type 1 diabetic. My mother is a cancer survivor. My brother has a heart condition. Covering pre-existing conditions is personal to me, and it's the right thing to do. As long as I'm governor, people with pre-existing conditions will always be covered. Well, I mean, if you actually have a conservative position, as we're going to discuss, they they, they will be covered. But I, he doesn't mean what we mean. I mean, he, he means just echoing the guaranteed issue community rating mandates of Obamacare, which are what made – Healthcare and not it's not real healthcare, health insurance, medical insurance, actuarial actuarially insolvable, actuarially insolvent. You can't have solvency if you have property insurance that covers something after there was a fire, after you know the stuff after your house burned down. It shouldn't be too hard to explain to Americans that. Pre-existing conditions, you have to A, define why it is, how it happened. B, 
Now, when I say how it happened, not you know, obviously there's people born with stuff, people who develop stuff. That that's that's obvious. The world's not a utopia. I mean, how it happened that there's no such thing as life insurance, a, a, an equivalent of life insurance that you could buy indemnity policies for your kids, for your unborn kids, and certainly when you're younger, when you begin working, that will be portable and remain with you for the rest of your life in an actually solvent way that it will actually insure and be insurance and not post. Payment, you know, a welfare program. Why we don't have that, we'll discuss that. Because government boxed out that solution, government prohibited it, and government gave a monopoly to the current medical insurance industry that is now mixing with the provider of healthcare, pharmacies, and hospital industry to be- become one big megalopoly and price everyone out of the market. But how it happened, and then how you isolate and minimize the problem not integrate and maximize the problem, meaning expand the actual insolvents across the market and say, okay, every insurer needs to cover something that's not actuarially insolvent. Well, yeah, then everyone will pay the rate of those that are chronically ill rather than no. You have a functioning market, so every that drives down the price. So then now all the subsidies you need to use to subsidize everyone paying a million dollars that can't afford it, you actually just use that, uh, you know, a fraction of of the three point four trillion we spend on healthcare as an economy, of the one point six ish or so trillion we spend combined state and federal. About one trillion of that is federal on healthcare. A fraction of that, you you expend towards the indigenous, in, in, indigent and um, I was talking about Native Americans at the beginning of the show, so I flubbed that. So the indigent population and the chronically ill. And you'll have more than enough to just freaking give them the money to pay the provider and not enrich this third-party middleman. Cut out the middleman. That will be the theme of today's show on healthcare. But I just want to say it is astounding that our people are just like totally bought in. I, you know, I don't mean some sort of ancillary issue. I mean this is the whole enchilada. This is the biggest fiscal and economic issue of our time, yet our people don't care. Just taking a drink here. I'm determined not to lose my voice like like I did last uh, last week. It took all weekend to recover. Got to learn how to use my voice better here. Um, you know, f- first, just a couple of notes <clears throat> that are related. And you know, if we don't get to it after we're done with healthcare, we'll get to it next show. Obviously, I've I've touched on it a lot last week. But um, just just first as a note, the fact that this is a quiet week, that is the problem. See, it shouldn't be a quiet week because if Republicans were doing what I proposed, then they would have come back in Congress with a relentless agenda. Believe me, the media would have been engaged, but again, engaged on our turf. So, you know, if the media is not on attack – which they're kind of, you know, they're always looking for the next thing and they'll come out with the next thing. We just stand down because all we do is respond. We don't act. We don't have our own strategy. We don't have our own moves. And I'm going to keep drumming in this point until we until we have a movement to deal with it. And I just wanted to mention, I, I really want to um, just issue a hearty congratulations to our friends at AEI, the American Enterprise Institute, for having their first transgender 
uh, national defense foreign policy analyst. Um, you know, Arthur Brooks, the esteemed uh, head of that think tank, said that you know they're they're all open to this. This is great. And you know, I was talking about how the conservative think tanks have no vision anymore. Um, we need a Christopher. We need a Christopher Columbus of policy. We need policy entrepreneurship that's lacking. So I guess they are expanding new horizons here. Um, transgender analysts. Um, all I can tell you, folks, is this is conservatism, circa 2018. This is what it means to be a conservative think tank in this day and age. Um, and by the way, speaking of the point, um, you know, my friend Ben Shapiro put out on Twitter. Uh, it's, it's so true that you know we're all talking about what percentage blood uh, Native American blood is in um, the lineage of of Senator Warren. Yet we don't – and I'm just paraphrasing here. I don't have his quote in front of me. He put it out on Twitter. Yet somehow we can't agree on X, X chromosomes, but um, even conservatives can't. So you have conservative think tanks uh, hiring transgenders. You have um, conservative – you know, the other big think tank, Heritage Foundation, was the original one to push Obamacare before they walked it back. So, well, there you go. This is your or- Orwellian-controlled opposition of Washington, D.C. conservatism. And that's why, folks, I promise you, my pledge to you is no matter what, I will give you the stone-cold truth. I will not get sucked in to the swamp. I am committed to fighting it, and no matter how much groupthink there is on, ooh, new open-mindedness on healthcare uh, and X chromosomes and... um criminal justice reform, which, by the way, is a big seminar at Heritage Foundation next week promoting that as well. And and that's another point I want to make. You know, we've been ignoring all the policy outcomes. So in other words, Republicans have been adopting DACA and Obamacare, probably the two most notorious domestic policy initiatives of Obama, certainly, um, you know, in his presidency. And Republicans adopted it. And that's not really news. What has consumed the news the last 19 months or so since Trump has taken office are these quasi-cultural flashpoints. And let me be the first to tell you, I understand them. I agree with focusing on them, and I think they're important that Trump fights them and serves as a voice for them if the policies we promote back up those goals we portend to desire out of these quasi-cultural flashpoints. But if they contradict them, then it's a joke. It, like I say, it's like having the icing without a cake, having a harmony without, without a melody. You know, and over the weekend, Trump was attacked for saying that Robert E. Lee was a terrific general and a terrific human being. And um, I, I'm, I'm very proud of him for, for standing up to him. I'm, I'm glad he said that that's very important. You know, my parents were just talking about this over the weekend. They came over, and they're just so disturbed by it. The taking down of statues, even even you know when the police are supposedly blocking them, they always find a way to just commit violence. Uh, this this cultural jihad, anti-history jihad, um, and and you know Robert E. Lee. Everyone in this country, everyone, has always appreciated that he's more than just you know studying history. That he is actually a figure to be um, admired. You know, whereas you know someone like Jefferson Davis, obviously you'll study that as a historical figure, studying um, the the Civil War, 
But, you know, Robert E. Lee is just um unbelievable person. Unbelievable. And, and it, it, it's so sad. So, so sad. Um, you know, there was a park uh, nearby where I live in Baltimore County that was renamed. You know, they took Robert E. Lee's name off of it. And... You know, it's it's good because people see this president. Hey, he might be personally flawed, but he loves America. That, that's what people see that he make America great again in terms of restoring our patriotism, and that's a big part of it. Everyone knows that Robert E. Lee could have easily uh, served for the North the minute he was defeated. Um, you know, when we think of Robert E. Lee, we don't think of you know slavery. We think of Appomattox. We think of the reconciliation. We think of you know people forget that. Um, he did have, and he died, you know, relatively young. But he did have a, a couple of years after the Civil War, became the uh, whatever superintendent, the head of um, Washington University, became Washington and Lee University. I guess they'll crop the Lee out now. And he literally just revamped the whole college curriculum and a lot of our the structure of college curriculum today, which unfortunately, you know, obviously, 160 years later does need to be updated now. Um, but back then, it was you know all from the revolutionary period, and he, uh, you know, he was just instrumental in that. And people forget about that. But you know, j- just a quick note on that: in a letter, uh, President Eisenhower. I mean, you know, who greater than Eisenhower, the man who defeated Nazism? Uh, said of him, General Robert E. Lee was, in my estimation, one of the supremely gifted men produced by our nation. He believed unservingly in the constitutional validity of his cause, which until 1865 was still an arguable question in America. He was a poison-inspiring leader, true to the high trust <coughs> reposed in him by millions of his fellow citizens. Citizens, He was thoughtful yet demanding of his officers and men, forbearing with captured enemies, but ingenious, unrelenting, and personally courageous in battle, and never disheartened by a reverse or obstacle. Um, Through all his many trials, he remained selfless almost to a fault and unfailing in his faith in God. Taken all together, he was able as a leader and as a man, and unsullied as I read the pages of our history. Um, From deep conviction, I simply say this, a nation of men of Lee's caliber would be unconquerable in spirit and soul, indeed to the degree that present-day American youth will strive to emulate his rare qualities, including his devotion to his land, as revealed in his painstaking efforts to help heal the nation's wounds once the bitter struggle was over. We, in our time, our own time of danger in a divided world, will be strengthened and our love of freedom sustained. Um, that is, That is Eisenhower. So, you know, if you want to mess with Robert E. Lee, go mess with Eisenhower and say he was a, you know, white supremacist, whatever, the man who sent troops to um, four southern states to, to you know, get with the program with desegre- desegregation. So, you know, this is something that really until this generation of the alt-left, everyone, you know, when I was in school, I used to do, um, you know, when you had to pick a biog- uh, biography, and I used to do reports on people like Robert E. Lee, um, people you admired, and you know, he was someone I, I probably did I probably did during several grades in elementary school. And you know, no one ever gave a problem with that. It was always understood, it was obvious. 
Um, no one thought that you were like, hey, the South shall rise again, you know, flying a Confederate flag in your backyard with uh, with the Klan. I mean, nobody thought of that that way. Um, Robert E. Lee didn't think of it that way in 1866. Um, not much so even, even you know, in 1861. But it, it, it's truly a shame. It's truly, truly a shame. So, so there's that. But I just wanted to tell you, because why? Why am I giving you this, this uh, introduction? And we're going to tie it back into healthcare. I wanted to tell you that I'm not one of these people like. Shut up, Mr. President. Just talk about policy. Just give me my policies. I don't care about you know some of these quasi-cultural flashpoints. I understand the importance of them. But here's the problem. What, what, what was the biggest cultural flashpoint so far? Right, That has pretty much just saturated the, the, the news cycles for, for the last year and a half. It was the Colin Kaepernick business. Okay, the kneeling during the national anthem. And Trump has been... That, that is one of Trump's probably most impactful things he's done. I mean, both according to his detractors and supporters. Really taking a hatchet to the NFL. They've lost a lot of business from it because, the, because of the president. Um, but what's so ironic is we forget, do you know what they were kneeling about? Do you know what they were kneeling about? They were kneeling about because they say black lives matter. Um, meaning what? Meaning that cops and whites kill too many black people. And Trump then invited Kanye West into the White House, whom I affectionately call Kane West. So he invited him into the White House. And that in itself is another quasi-cultural fight over, oh, a black guy, a rapper is going and joining with Trump, and the left's calling him racist things, so we have to respond. But really, on the policy, he's countermanding that with Trump coming out and saying that, yeah, our, our incarceration is, is hurting blacks. It's racist. Really? So I have a whole article out today. I don't want to go through all the data points, but fresh FBI data disproving this and how Trump himself used to say this stuff. And somehow now it's okay. So Trump is promoting the Colin Kaepernick meme now. Even as he fought it. I mean, this is the problem. Trump has good intuition, but he's all over the place. And he has Jared and a bunch of idiots in the White House. And if we don't have a counter-conservative movement, counter-swamp movement that keeps him in line, he's going to drift. Think about this. In 2017, 1,272 more black people were killed by homicide than white people. 7,851 blacks were killed in 2017. By homicide, 6,579 whites were killed. I want, I want you to let that seep in for a moment. Blacks compose 13% of the population, okay? Yet they account for 54% of all homicide offenders, but also homicide victims. And, and who are they being killed by? Almost none of them are being killed by police. It's like a handful. And again, most, uh, almost all of those are justified. 88.4% of black homicides were committed by other blacks. That, that is – it's terrible. I mean, <laughs> Black Lives Matter, if you really think it matters, this should be what's driving the national discussion. 
How do we stop this? This is unbelievable to have 13, almost 1,300 more blacks killed by homicide in raw numbers, not percentage, in raw numbers than whites, given that they just comprise 13% of the population or compose just 30% of the population. That is unbelievable. Again, blacks um, accounted for 33% of those arrested for rape, 55% of robbery robbery, and 34% of aggravated assault. Again, they only account for 30% of the population. So the reality is and, – and liberals understand this, by the way, the liberal academics. The, you know, I've said a lot of things. I've written tons of articles. I've written – probably 50, 60 articles on this issue, countless uh, broadcasts on this. But if I had to sum up in one issue, you know, they talk about nonviolent drug offenders. And and we've certainly said a lot on that, how it's not. They're not for simple possession. They're all in there for drug trafficking, especially on a federal level, and how it's mainly an immigration problem. We, we've discussed all this stuff. But as I mentioned, Charles Lane, who is a liberal academic, wrote in the Washington Post a few years ago, that blacks make up 37.5% of all state prisoners. Okay? And again, they roughly account for 40% of the violent crime. So, you know, it, yes, they are certainly incarcerated more than their population, but they commit an even greater share of the crime. So, if anything, there's an under incarceration problem. But you know what he said? He said, if we released all of those people serving in state prison for drug charges, the proportion of African Americans in state prison would essentially be unchanged. That's the big lie. And he actually goes on to say, look, if you want to reduce prison population, you're going to have to start cutting sentences or avoiding prison for um, for, for violent crime. But they can't run on that because the public doesn't want it. So I have to say, oh, there's a bunch of people being locked up for BS crimes. But it's a lie. Even if I, even if you let all those people go that you say are BS crimes, when they're usually not, they're usually initially arrested for other stuff, but they pled down. I will tell you, it won't make a difference. That's the dirty little secret. It's all violent crime, and like I said, the population, the prison population, is full of that many people, blacks and whites, but again, disproportionately blacks because of violent crime. But even then, it's only a fraction of the violent crime that we actually solve and, and, and lend convictions on. You know, what if I told you we could properly identify and arrest and apprehend and convict every violent offender? Any normal person outside of crazy policy circles would tell you th- that would be a blessing, of course. But you understand, if we were to do that, just in one year, 6,013 murder cases went uncleared. 79,000 rape cases, 206,000 robbery cases, and 349,000 aggravated assault cases. We have a violent crime problem. So even if we let go all the people you say you want to let go, but if we actually truly solve the crime problem and we actually apprehended all these people of just the categories of crime that we all agree are violent, the prison population would metastasize. So this is the big lie, again, with this entire issue. But again, unfortunately, Trump is and, – and this was – Trump was saying this stuff. There's nothing new that I'm saying. Trump said this his entire career. 
but again, it, it, this gets back to I want to move move on to healthcare. I spent too much time on this. Um, these quasi cultural flashpoints. Oh, the Democrats are pushing Medicare for all, but we're we're essentially be- agreeing to Medicaid for all, Obamacare subsidies for all, and actuarially insolvent Obamacare regulations. And then in five years from now, probably two to three years from now, we'll agree to Medicare for all as the way to stop European style socialism. Wink and nod, it's the same thing. But you know what I mean? We're forever agreeing to this. As you so so what what is the truth about what's going on? Here's the narrative the Republicans need on the campaign trail. They need to say, you little SOBs. You are the ones hurting people with pre-existing conditions and everyone. You are the one degrading healthcare. You are the one getting doctors out of this business. You are the one with Medicaid expansion creating monopolies for the insurance cartel, the pharmaceutical cartel, and the hospital cartel, which is all melded into one. Now you have, last Wednesday, DOJ approved a merger between CVS and Aetna. So you have an insurer and you have a provider, in this case a provider being a... um, pharmaceutical, a, a pharmacy. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, everyone from right to left, everyone's outraged to the extent they're focusing on this. Oh, oh Monopoly, eh. you're right, it's terrible. How did we get here? Who caused it? This is, again, this is everything that has been bad in healthcare has been bad until now. Why did this stuff exacerbate until now? Why are the cranes of the construction everywhere in these urban hospitals expanding rapidly the last couple of years? Why do you have all these mergers of all the major hospitals buying up these like Life MedStar, LifeBridge, healthcare conglomerates buying up all the hospitals? Private practice in America is being destroyed, doesn't exist anymore. Mergers now, so much so. The insurers buying everyone up, the providers buying everyone up, and now the providers and the insurers, who are the insurers, are essentially the consumers because they're paying on behalf. So now they're playing both sides of the end, and we're, we're we're totally screwed. That was happening before, but it's being accelerated post Obamacare and post Medicaid expansion. Nobody on the campaign trail, nobody, except for Chip Roy, my buddy in Texas running for Congress, is making this case. District 21, by the way, if you want to donate to one person that will never, ever disappoint you, the best person that will ever step foot in Congress is Chip Roy. And you could take that to the bank. So go to, go to his website and uh, give, give generously because he's being severely outspent because he's not getting a penny from the healthcare cartel. I love it. All these people, <laughs> we cannot allow insurers to discriminate against pre-existing. <laughs> All these people are getting money from them. It's a joke. So um, precisely because of that, because they, they like it, it actually boxes out competition. So how did we get here and what's going on? So here's the thing to understand what has happened to the insurance cartel monopoly and how government has created it. Number one, they get half their revenue from administering Medicaid and Medicare. So right off the bat, they get market share. They get market share. See, picture if a lot of people think Medicaid and Medicare, okay, that's one topic, that's the public, and then there's the private market. But the problem is the same people – 
the same companies that are going to negotiate with you, the private citizen that's not on Medicare, Medicaid, let's say, they're getting 78% or so of the Medicaid contracts. And certainly Medicare um, Advantage, Medicare Part C, is administered by the insurance cartel. Right? It's not pure government. That's what, And you've heard me say this a number of times. Our healthcare system is venture socialist. It's not socialist. It's venture socialist, meaning it's you take government taxpayer capital and regulations and interventions and market distortions, and you mix them with this small insular um, private entity or entities that were given a monopoly by the government – and you have the worst outcomes of capitalism and the worst outcomes of socialism. Right? Capitalism is very greedy. People want to make money. But the good news is consumers are also very greedy. So when you have an endless number of competitors on the provider side where you don't have artificial government market distortions boxing out competition, and then the consumer is the consumer, it's like an iPhone – it's like anything else where people are – 320 million people are shopping for it rather than one large pot of government slash insurance cartel really representing everyone. You reach a market equ- equilibrium on that. Here, you have the greed of the private sector, so to speak, which isn't really private, without the check and balance of the free market. So they automatically get – I mean they, people, places like Aetna, you want to know why they're, they're able to do these um, mergers. They get up to 60% of their revenue on a given year from Medicare and Medicaid. So let's go to – let's go back to um, our original analogy we've used when, we, when we've brought up healthcare before. Let's say I have a lemonade stand. And I sell really lousy lemonade. I mean, even if I sold good lemonade, it would be hard to get off the ground and and uh, get customers. But I mean, it's just it just stinks. Nobody would ever you, you wouldn't drink it for free. Now, bear with me with the analogy. You would have to add in one asterisk that it's somewhat needed in it of itself. If you don't like it, you would have to. There would be a reason that people would have to use it. And. Basically, government comes in and they start so, – so normally I can't afford to charge you $10 for a, you know, an eight-ounce plastic cup of lousy lemonade because you just wouldn't pay – it's not worth $10. You're not paying it. I can't afford to have that hanging out on my sign there. Because I couldn't last for a day and earn a living and keep up even the whatever costs I would have to to uh, keep my entity afloat. I couldn't afford to do that. But let's say from the get-go, government gives me 60% of my revenue. They have programs, you know, Tropicare and Tropicade, or like Tropic, you know, like orange juice, lemonade, whatever, to give to all anyone over 65 and anyone below um, a certain level of poverty, but now after the Medicaid expansion, a tremendous amount of able-bodied ad- adults. Tremendous amount. And then I throw in Obamacare on top of that, 
where they pay money for people to buy they, they give money to the cartel even up until 400% of the poverty line, even above the 180% um, Medicaid threshold. So then, already, I could wait you out a little bit. I could screw the private market now because I have the public market that's given to me. But then there's another thing. See, the private market isn't private either because 80% or so of the remaining half of the pie, the private market, see, they get from the government $270 billion a year in market distorting tax exemption for employers to purchase their product. So let's say the government spends $270 billion a year for employers on behalf of their employees to patronize my lemonade businesses throughout throughout the country. <laughs> so I'm guaranteed revenue there. Again, if if a if an employer would want to raise the salary, you know, give an extra ten thousand, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars to that employee in terms of you know just higher salary, they'd have to pay taxes on that. But if they give it to my lemonade business, <laughs> Then you don't pay taxes, so that's almost essentially a mandate. It's it's that that's that's almost essentially forcing the market in that direction. That was the original sin of healthcare, even before Obamacare, the tax exclusion for employers, because it both floods my business with cash that I didn't really earn and shouldn't and don't need to earn and don't need to have customer satisfaction in terms of quality and pricing to get, but it also then boxes out the individuals that are stuck without a job that offers it or they want to be a self-employed they're screwed they're they're boxed out cuz now those remaining people I could just twist the screws on them but I'm not done yet then they lobby for more regulatory for a regulatory climate that shuts out competition guaranteed issue and community rating see once you understand how they get market share from the other stuff and how government guarantees them the income, then they actually like the regs. You know, people ask me, well, Daniel, if these, you know, guaranteed issue community rating, essential health benefits, um, you know, and many of the other Obamacare regulations, the um, medical loss ratio, if if they're really actually insolvent, then why do the insurers lobby for them? And the answer is, when if you didn't have the subsidies. The Medicaid expansion, base Medicaid, Medicare, and the $270 billion market distorting tax exemption flowing into their coffers, then yeah, they would have to sink or swim based on it, and they wouldn't, they wouldn't like it. But once you guarantee their income, not only do they not mind the regs, it actually helps them because it, box, they, it boxes out anyone from ever challenging them. Because you have all the contracts. You have the employer contracts. You have the Medicare-Medicaid contracts. Notice I mentioned we don't have 320 billion um, consumers. We really have three. Now, it's a little bit more complicated than that. You have diverse employers, but you get, you get, you get what I mean. It's essentially Medicare, Medicaid, and employers. That, that's essentially the, the medical insurance market. Everyone else is screwed. So what that does 
is it guarantees them so much they want see if you didn't have the guaranteed issue community rating you'll have others come along that yeah they you know they have to break in and it's hard enough with the monopoly of government contracts but at least with the prices gouging people they could at least try to corner and service that individual market in other words people that don't have a job giving them insurance or or they're a self-employed small business owner and they're above the subsidy line that population that's really really getting hosed they could service them but they can't because no one could offer those plans now you have this temporary valve the short-term plans and that trump is trying to get around administratively and we've talked about that before it's better than nothing but you get the point then then number four they're backed by the force of law to require employers and individuals to purchase their product now officially we have gotten rid of the individual mandate we still have the employer mandate that the employees must purchase their products. So imagine you must purchase my lemonade. And then even where the government hasn't done it, the fed, I'm sorry, federal government, a lot of states are backfilling the individual mandate now that they repealed the national mandate in the tax bill. And by the way, just as an aside, D.C., meaning Washington, D.C., municipality government, is one of those where you have 50 states in D.C. D.C. government created their own fix, so to speak, to, to mandate um, purchase of insurance. And guess what? As you well know, the Washington, D.C. government is controlled by the Home Rule Act, meaning Congress controls them. It's a federal district. You, know, you could debate about whether the federal government should control such a large swath of territory now that it's you know 600,000 people or whatever. It's not just a Capitol Hill like it was at the time of the founding. But nonetheless, at the end of the day, it is a federal property. So Congress has power over them at present. So you know Congress can't nullify a, you know, a state individual mandate, but D.C.'s government, they actually absolutely can. Well – Ted Cruz had an amendment, and it was voted down. Voted down. This happened a couple weeks ago. Then there's another thing that through their government-granted monopoly, they create what's called hold-harmless clauses in contracts with providers that prevent doctors from offering life-saving treatments to those willing to pay out-of-pocket unless they're covered by the cartel. They can't offer self-pay discounts, and that's why you don't have price transparency. So this is one big dumpster fire where, where um, essentially you have the government-created monopoly for those that are existed in healthcare and those that were operating at the time the, this stuff was passed but then exacerbated 10 times over with the passage of the Obamacare regulations, the Obamacare subsidies, and the Medicaid expansion. Medicaid expansion created a massive pool of funding just shoved for a massive population of able-bodied adults, free money, artificial market, monopoly money that wasn't organically in the market was given to both the insurers and then the healthcare providers, so to speak, such as the pharmacies and the hospitals. With the Medicaid expansion, especially the hospitals. So... Basically, 
Now with this background, you can understand the CVS Aetna merger. <clears throat> See, what is this, this Siri stuff? This is insane. Sometimes I talk and something gets hit and all of a sudden it starts acting, acting up on me. <laughs> Sorry about that. But whenever you have 320 million consumers, so it's very hard. For, so there's two levels. There's two types of monopolies. There's a monopoly where, you know, on, a, on the provider side, you know, one entity or few entities pretty much buy everything up. Which is happening, but now we're seeing we're taking it to the next level—an unbelievable megalopoly of the provider monopoly buying up the consumers. So they play both sides of that of the stick. Whenever you have, you know, look at an array of food and clothing and everything else, electronics, everything else that works in our market. You have three hundred twenty individual people striving to purchase that product all want and every one of them wants the same thing they want the best mix of quality of product or service at the cheapest price every consumer is damn greedy okay never forget that every consumer is as greedy as any corporation there's this thing like consumers are awesome corporations are evil and really, in a free market, they're both good. They're both greedy, but that's okay. It's only not okay when the government intervenes and distorts the market in a way that gives an upper hand to people. Then, then greed becomes a then. Then the greed of the so-called private sector exacerbates what the government created. So that's the complication. You know, is America's healthcare system better or worse than Europe's? That's a trick question. Conservatives automatically feel a need to defend our system and say, no, Europe sucks. But the, the answer is it's, it's a mix. And some things, because we still at the end of the day don't have literally the post office administering the healthcare, it is private. So some of the healthcare outcomes, the R&D for sure, no one could deny. You know, they're talking about Finland has awesome healthcare. Yeah, yeah, sh show me the R&D coming out of Finland. Yeah, 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 sure, <laughs> okay. You know, that, that's from here. But in terms of, of the insurance and the cost and the middlemen and the bloodsuckers and the inefficiency of spending $3.4 for what we get, yeah, it's worse than anywhere else in the world because it's the worst mix of venture socialism and capitalism. The absolute worst mix. So that's, this is what happened. They had the Medicaid expansion and the Obamacare to basically everyone needs to get covered. But it's one big market for Aetna and the likes because Aetna sucks up the private, so to speak. So they get everything. They get the employers through the tax exclusion. They get the individual market of people not getting from work through the subsidies, most people. And then they get Medicare Medicaid, which has massively been expanded. So basically, they just got together and it's one big pot where CVS – could buy out insurers, and that's how, how you, you, that, that's on the pharmacy side. You have it also on the hospital and doctor side, where the hospital administrator conglomerates are buying up multiple hospitals and then multiple private practices. So you'll have MedStar practice. You don't have Doctor John James that you go to see for your issues. You have the MedStar practice, 
And then now you even have Etna, or I forgot who it was. Um, wasn't Etna, but it's all of them are doing this recently. Insurers buying up the 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 practices. So you have insurer owned. You have like you know United Health doctor practice. And in the case of CVS, it's the opposite. It's the provider pretty much buying more or less buying up the the insurer in that case gobbling them up because it's all one big pot. I could start buying up all those middlemen entities for my lemonade company. You can't buy up 320 million consumers unless you offer them amazing service at, at the right price. But if the consumer is not the consumer, if the consumer is a handful, literally just mainly five, six, seven insurers that get most of their revenue directly or indirectly from government subsidies, programs, grants, regulatory boxing out of competition, and other market distortions that you can't even imagine that they lobby for. Yeah, you better believe it. See, the the big myth, everyone thought when when Richard Nixon started with HMOs, the thought was that, look, rather than having pure socialism, the government manage it, why don't we give it over to the insurance cartel? And the understanding was, well, if you make it, you know, them on the hook for it and it's their problem, um, you know, they will have a much better interest in in um making it work more efficiently and cutting costs. And unfortunately, this has been the GOP mentality for two generations because they're trained to think, well, look, it's, it's, it's the you know, private sector versus uh, uh, the post office. I'd, I'd rather it be run by, by the private sector. What they don't understand is there's only one problem with that. Healthcare is different from what they're thinking of because in healthcare – once you see if you are able to give it up to them and then sever ties that they can never like open up their mouths and lobby theoretically that could happen the problem is you you invite the snake into the den they own you they have their constricting around your neck so now they own the market every single month of every single year they will now dictate the terms um, well, actually, no, you see, we want more money because we wouldn't want prices to go up on people, right? So you better hand it up over more, more. And it's a death spiral. It's just the opposite. Rather than them cutting costs, they don't mind it because they could always ask for more. Theoretically, if there was a finite amount of money and you knew they could never get more out of the government and the government was like some sort of machine. It wasn't human beings that had to get elected and you know were on the payroll of all their you know they're the most prolific uh, donors of any industry. Theoretically, what Nixon thought with HMOs could be true and it could play out that way, theoretically. But that ship has sailed. So they just ask for more and more and more. And then you know the regulatory boxing out and everything. And that's how it goes up and up and up and up and up. Um, it's truly unbelievable if you think about it. Truly, truly unbelievable the way, the way our system has been working. 
this is the narrative. It doesn't fit on a bumper sticker, but there are there are some things you say. Let's stop making the government-controlled insurance cartel rich again. Don't give them a monopoly to box out consumers. You know, I'm just trying to think of the numbers. I I, I don't have them all. Yeah, yeah, he, here it is. In 1960, do you know how much as a nation we spent on health care? $27 billion. Today, that would be worth about $250 billion. $250 billion. Okay, so it's a lot of money, but you know, in a country this size, you know, it's it's reasonable that you would definitely spend that much on healthcare. That that's fine, right? Two hundred fifty billion. You know what we spend? Roughly three point three three point four trillion. Now you might laugh, but that makes a huge difference because two hundred fifty billion is about what until this year. Now it's going to skyrocket. We're paying just on interest on debt. Three point three trillion a year is like, uh, yeah. I mean, you can't you can't grow out of that. $250 billion is a lot, but our economy could handle that. Here you're talking about a number that is um, you know, almost 10 times larger. 10 times. We're spending almost 10 times as much on healthcare since 1960. Why do I pick 1960 as the benchmark? Because that was before the tax exclusion was just starting, but didn't really so much affect the market. You have to wait another 10 years to really see that. Certainly, Medicare, Medicaid um, didn't exist, and um, you know the whole HMO business. That is what's wrong. That is what needs to happen. We need single payer from provider to from from consumer to provider, and the consumer must be the consumer. And insurance is like anything else with cars and and um, casualty uh, uh, life insurance, property insurance. That it's not that the insurers would get involved in price. See, right now, why don't you have price transparency? Because the insurers control the market. The insurers and providers collude because they are the consumer. If the money ain't there, the money ain't there. I could say you have to pay me a trillion dollars for my service all I want, but if the money ain't there, it ain't there. And that's what it was in the old days. They couldn't charge it because the money just wasn't there. Government has provided it, so now it's there. So now if you don't have it, if you're not subsidized, you're screwed. And that's where pre-existing conditions comes in. Because now if you're like, dude, I, I just want, you know, I, I want to be able to live that, you know, I could take out for my unborn child an indemnity life insurance payment that if he develops upon birth or upon later on, or if I'm, you know, a 22-year-old young man and I'm about to leave my parents' house, I'm, I'm leaving college, and I'm looking for my first job, and my parents aren't I'm, I'm off my parents insurance i just want a casualty insurance that i know is reasonable that just like my life insurance plan that i'm about to take out as i start working you know let's say especially when you get married 100 dollars a month whatever it will be and i'm covered if something bad happens and then everything else everyone pays out of pocket Beyond that, you know, if you develop diabetes, develop cancer, bad accident, that's what the casualty insurance will be. And then the insurance will be, they'll pay you, and then you pay the provider. It gives you an indemnity payout. Rather than they pay the, 
you know, they price fix with the provider because that's how you don't have price transparency. You can't have price transparency because there's no price. You don't have consumers paying it. It's all set by the insurers. Here's what we will allow for this because that's where the money is. Meaning in casualty insurance, it's not just the fact that it just covers catastrophic and doesn't pay for you know uh, changing your light bulbs in your home, you know fixing your uh, uh, ghost flushing toilet. I just had another toilet like that, right? It doesn't pay for that. Everyone knows that comparison, but there's a second element contrast of modern day medical insurance with property insurance, and that is. That and it's really related. It's grown out of the first factor. Is that with um, with homeowners, they don't get on the playing field and set the terms of the cost of siding and roofs and and bricks and um, and windows. They, they don't they don't price that. It's a market. If you if you have a casualty, if you have a, a ca- catastrophe. Um, with your home. So, okay, what's the payout? You get $200,000 for your home. Okay, and then you go and build a home. Same thing with cars. Here it's not like that. Whether it's the casualty part, the ca- catastrophic scenario, or the prepaid plan of going for your regular doctor's visits and taking out your insurance card, it's all price fixed. So, you little SOBs want to talk about pre-existing conditions. But um so the first thing to recognize is that the world is not a utopia. There will always be a certain percentage of people who are chronically ill and in need of costly treatment that can't be provided exclusively through the traditional insurance market. Right? Because they're just not insurable. A lot of people would be at a little higher price. But the real, real bad cases, you, you wouldn't be. But the best way to deal with pre-existing conditions is to isolate and minimize the problem. That is to lower the cost of healthcare itself. So meaning, if we're not spending a, trill- a dumpster fire on everything else we shouldn't be, so we could train our finite number of funds on where it needs to go. Rather than increasing insurance rates on everyone else. The only way to do that is by empowering the consumer to control his own health care and risk-pooling decisions, whether it's health-sharing ministries, any other risk-pooling thing that people want to get get together. I don't like calling it insurance because that shouldn't be the only thing in town. Rather than empowering a government insurance cartel to price-fix us all into oblivion. See, the reason why you don't have Insurers offering, like we had um, two years ago, we had Professor John Cochran on our show discussing his idea of health status insurance, where you'd have traditional insurance and then you'd have health status where you insure against a change in status. And if you had a change in status, they would pay out a lump sum of money to you. It's like winning a a life insurance indemnity. And why don't we have it? A, because of the regulations. But B, the government boxed it out of the market because of Medicare, Medicaid, uh, Obamacare, Medicaid expansion, and all the, the insurer, the, the employer tax exclusion, and then all the regs. No, A, no one could break into the system, and B, 
There's no need for it. Government has all, even before Obamacare, they had high risk pools that were working in most states. There were very few people. The dirty little secret is 84% of the coverage gains under Obamacare are Medicaid. They're not the private insurance. Why do you need to have guaranteed issue community rating on the private side, so to speak, if you had the Medicaid for everyone else? So leave these people alone. And even among the private, most of the, thi- most of the gains were among young, healthy people that weren't chronically ill, that just got it. They'd never had it before because not because they couldn't afford it. They didn't want it. They could have had very cheap plans before Obamacare. Catastrophic when you're young and single. Um, I-, I used to have them. It was like $80 a month. And, then, and, and it worked. If God forbid something happened, it worked. That was insurance. If you just want to visit the doctor for, you know, you think you might have bronchitis, you know, that, that winter or something, some of the flu, yeah, you'll, you'll pay. You got to pay, you know. But it was worth it by not shelling out thousands of dollars on, on uh, now, now tens of thousands of dollars on annual insurance, which isn't really insurance. But also, you can't do indemnity payments because an insurer, you can't actually, you know, okay, so, okay, if you get cancer um, or diabetes, we're going to give you a lump sum of $300,000. We can't do that because there, there's no prices. And there is no prices because we don't have it. it it's, it's a vicious cycle that the government created. And that's the thing. Beginning in the government actions in the 50s and 60s, the government both regulated and subsidized market forces out of healthcare entirely. So the medical insurance cartel has been empowered through subsidies, the tax code, Medicare, Medicaid, price-fixing laws to have a monopoly on the delivery of care, obfuscate all price transparency, and prevent both the consumer from enjoying any innovative competition and providers from offering direct care or other forms of insurance such as casualty insurance or health sharing associations because there's no need and there's no a there's no need and b there's no ability for them to do it and i'm not even get this is all cost i'm not even getting to the delivery i thought i'd get to that today we'll, we'll have to continue another time but how the buying up of private practice now by creating this monopoly how you have no innovation also you're going to have more like in europe with charlie charlie um Gosh, what what was that kid's name? I can't believe I'm already forgetting it. But the kid that was taken off of life support, there were several cases. Um, and you're going to have more of that because you don't have options now. It's a couple of health conglomerates that are essentially regulated and subsidized by government. We're going to have religious liberty problems. You only have innovation where you have competition. They don't. They, they they have us. They're these big clunky bureaucracies. They're horrible. You go to these doctor practices. They're horrible, and the doctors themselves are getting burned out. You know, Sally Pipes um, has a good article here at Forbes. We're going to link to. There was a recent survey by the Physicians Foundation of 8,700 doctors. Fewer than half are satisfied with their jobs. They contrast that to other professions. On average, 79% of Americans are satisfied with what they do for a living. Less than half of doctors are. More than three in four doctors feel burned out. 80% are overworked and overextended. Nearly, ne- nearly two-thirds are pessimistic about the future of the medical profession. 
47%, 46% of those surveyed plan to change career paths. You're losing a lot of talent, and I see that all the time. Almost half say they wouldn't recommend medicine as a career to their children. Got a lot of early retirements going on. Doctor shortage, which is going to drive up the prices even more. This the insane, all the, the regulations on them, we're not even discussing some of the regulations just on the provider. We're, we're talking from an insurance standpoint today, but just all the regulations on providers. But th- th- this, is, this is where we are. This is where we are in this country. This is everything. It's our health. It's our lives. It's our longevity. It's, and it's the biggest cause of national debt, personal debt, economic problems. The ability of, of anyone even in the middle class in this country to live independently in a dignified way. There shouldn't even be anything conservative about this. Why aren't we having this discussion? But you, do, you know, do you know how dangerous this is? How dangerous it is when you do this? According to a recent analysis, well, so b- before I, I get back to destroying healthcare in America and private practice because of the Medicaid expansion and how the Medicaid expansion created these monopolies and these mergers and the endless buying up of hospitals, the Republicans refuse to run ads on them. It's a one sided fight. Even Idaho will likely expand Medicaid. So while we're having this fake fight over Medicare for all, we've agreed to Medicaid for all. And like I said, it's always the next step we agree to in order to stop the next next step. But I just want to close the loop on um, pre-existing conditions. So um, there's the employer stuff. Why should it be that I can't pursue my dreams? And have to find a job that has insurance? Do you know what a stupid thing that is? It, it comes out of wages. It depresses wages. It destroys talent. It's so inefficient that you choose, you know, you might not choose to start your own business or your own innovation because you're worried about medical insurance. Government tethered health care to medical insurance and then tethered medical insurance to your place of employment. It doesn't have to be this way. That's where the portability problem is. I can't move. I can't change jobs. I gotta go because now I developed a condition. Whereas if it would work like anything else, where everyone would pay as you go, all 320 million consumers, and then if you had 320 million consumers, you'd have an endless array of providers. We can only imagine the innovation, not just in in the price of delivery, but in the quality and and, and the R and D that would that would ensue if we'd have such a system. And then you just have your backstop for catastrophic. And then, like I said, once you solve that and you bring the prices down on 90% of people, then the remaining 10% that are too poor to even afford that system or they're too chronically ill and too costly, you could simply have my version of single payer. What do I mean by that? Cut out the middleman. First of all, 90% of the market's free. But even, you know, a free market, meaning private. But even the part where government gets involved, 
Cut out the middlemen. Don't have a stupid Medicaid program where you're empowering the insurance and hospital cartel both independently and then together and then merging, merging vertically, merging horizontally, and no price transparency. Take every single person that can't afford it and just freaking give them the money in a regulated HSA account. Everyone else would have them that could afford it. If you can't, we'll give it to you. We'll put the money in your pocket just directly. And then you go out individually, all of you, and, per, and, 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 and with an array of choices and purchase your mix of insurance out of pocket, health sharing ministries, whatever you want to do, whatever mix you want to do. By bringing down the cost of health care, not just insurance, health care, for those not on public programs, it will make true reform of Medicaid and dealing with the chronically ill levels easier and cheaper without sacrificing the safety net. We could directly subsidize the needy without destroying health care the same way we do with food stamps without destroying the food market. Think about it. This is what Scott Walker and these guys need to talk about. Oh, you're right. Oh, no. Let's, let's make insurance not insurance and pre-existing conditions. Oh, well, we have a destroyed market in the country. No, you idiots. We could directly subsidize the needy without destroying health care the same way we do with food stamps without destroying the food market. We just give people the money. Now, again, don't get me wrong. Overall, there's too many people on food stamps. There's too much dependency in the, in the, in the country. But I'm talking about at least if you're going to have well, – notice it's not even conservative. This common sense. I'm not even militating against welfare here. I'm just saying if you're going to have welfare, one of my favorite adages is the best way to give a handout is to give a handout. It's just to give it directly to the people rather than giving it to a, a monopoly, quasi-private, quasi-government that could endlessly leverage the government to, to, into this death spiral of more subsidies and higher prices. 75 million people are on Medicaid. That's appalling. As late as 1990, 22.9 million were on the program. It cost $41 billion. As late as the end of the Clinton presidency, there were just 34.5 million people enrolled at a cost of $117 billion. Today, there are 75 million people at a cost of – last year is $410 billion. And it's, it's more than that. And then that's just the federal share. The state share is easily over $150 billion. That's just the Medicare. That's just Medicaid without Medicare. Medicare is double that. You know, the, at, at another – Six seven hundred billion. But nonetheless, what I'm telling you today is I would agree. I would shake hands on it. Okay, Democrats, I think 75 million people on Medicaid is appalling. But I will agree all seven if we could have a free market for the rest of the people, 75 million people, fine. Here you go. Just change the structure. Just give it to them. Whatever you want to spend now. We spend $410 billion. Take that $410 billion and give it to the people directly. It's appalling. It shouldn't be that much. And if you had, if you did everything I've been talking about for the last half an hour, that same thing would cost half of that, a third of that, a quarter of that. But but fine, I won't cut it a bit. Here, here you go. 
Okay, here you go. 410, but the key is, it's not just that 410 billion, the problem is that within a decade, it's gonna go up to a trillion because you're empowering a cartel to endlessly milk the system for more. Cut that off. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. The average cost, the average cost of the program. So, so, so the um, I, I, I took, I, I took. If you take the combined federal and state, so it's about five hundred sixty billion. Medicaid costs about five hundred sixty billion combined federal and state. If you look at the, if you cut out the administrative costs, you look at the benefit payments. We spend about seven thousand four hundred ninety-two dollars per, per enrollee. And if you actually look at CMS's website. Well, what about the sick people? Okay, the disabled, we spend about almost 20000 per person. If you would take those people, okay, healthy person, $7,400, you know, someone sicker, $20,000, and you put the money in their pocket. Now, again, you have a regulated HSA account that could only be used for, for that. You set up that escrow account. So I, I say, let's say I, I break down a family of four. You have two adults is four thousand nine hundred eighty six apiece, plus two children is thirty three eighty nine. That's what we currently spend. That family would get sixteen thousand seven hundred and fifty dollars under the current system. I would give them sixteen thousand seven fifty. Now that's a lot. Because keep in mind, under my system now, we're getting rid of guaranteed issue, community rating, all this stuff, and you're going to have all these options. So picture pricing like pre-Obamacare. Really, it would be way below that under my system if we solve this. But even even just a couple years before Obamacare, that's way more than enough, even if you're chronically – even if you have you know a higher premium because of your conditions – you could fully choose how much you want to pay out of pocket, but you could pretty much be covered for most of anything. Even with Obamacare and very limited options, one could purchase a health sharing plan at Liberty Health Share. And this is not an advertisement, but Liberty Health Share for roughly $5,400 a year. Okay? $5,400 a year. There tends to be a $1,000 to $2,000 deductible. Prescription drugs aren't covered. Some other things aren't. But the rest, they, they do pay for. You could easily, 5400 for that, and then there would be, for that family, $11,300 left for any out-of-pocket, any gaps, and if they're more chronically ill. Because right now, you have to be very healthy, for Liberty Health Share, but again, if you had a market where more people pooling into it and you didn't have all this stuff, you would have people flooding it and then they would have a bigger pool and they'd be able to offer more. And they're not trying to milk the system. It's not for profit. So this is, you want to know, oh, what's the conservative position, the pre-existing conditions? Here it is. Keep it for life. And the people that can't, you freaking give them the money and literally, rather than spending one point six trillion at a governmental level, and whom was and you know more you know like one point eight trillion more um, privately, 
we'd spend a few hundred billion a year on on government. And again, even if we got it down 50%, tremendous. It, it, it would make all the difference. This is the healthcare narrative we don't have. We didn't have time to get to a couple other things I'm going to finish up later, but I wanted you to say this. Th- th- this is the point, you know, after the election, the day after the election, 100% of Rush Limbaugh and Fox News is all going to be focused on the soap opera between Cory Booker and Kamala Harris and the Indian whatever, Elizabeth Warren and whoever else is running for the Democrat nominee. I don't give a darn. They're all they're all just as extreme. I don't need conservative media focused on their dumpster fire. I need to know what we're going to do with our audience to get our people mobilized to ensure that whoever gets the Democrat nominee has a Republican Party or another party that is actually combating what they are doing in real life and offering an alternative. That is the healthcare lesson today. That is the lesson on the false gap between these fake quasi-cultural fights and the policy outcomes that make them worthwhile. Why am I so fired up today? Because I got energy. Why do I have energy? Because I went to purple.com and got myself an amazing, and I mean amazing, purple mattress. It literally feels like you're sleeping on air. The problem is most other mattress companies that try to address the comfort gap, it's just it's just not strong enough for support. Whereas here, the key here with purple mattresses is that it's it just has this perfect mix of support and softness. And by the way, you know, I'm sitting right now on my amazing, and I mean amazing, purple seat cushion. I had this major problem. I forgot what it's called with the sciatic nerve when it starts, um, when it's, it gets clamped down on because your, your hips get tight from sitting too fast, uh, sitting too long. And you know I'm sitting and studying this, this stuff and doing radio and writing. And after a while, I realized I was having serious hip problems with it. So, you know, rather than uh, go to the doctor and pay a fortune <laughs> to to diagnose this, uh, I actually saw some some YouTube videos. And 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 again, this just that's a whole other discussion on how healthcare is um really could innovate if we really wanted to, if we had a free market, just because of the internet, like every other product and service. Um, you know, I saw some PTs put out these exercises and it really, really helped me. But then I got myself a purple cushion. I, I feel like I'm sitting on air, but it's so firm. The silicone um, material that they made, it was ingenious. Um, it's, it, 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 it will feel different than anything you ever sleep on, whether it's the cushion, the mattress, or the pillow. And... Like I said, it's 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 breathable, so it sleeps cool. I always hate. I get very sweaty when I sleep. <laughs> my wife always makes fun out of that, and my uh, my oldest kid, um, you know, he got <laughs> he inherited that from me. Now, some of you might say, "Well, you know, I'm spending so much money paying for the dumpster fire healthcare, so I don't have money for another mattress." Here's the deal: try your 100 night risk free trial. 
It's free shipping. It's free returns. If you're not satisfied, you could return it fully refunded as well as free shipping there and back. But I think you're only the only reason you wouldn't go to purple.com, check out their videos, and purchase it with your with your special free offer for conservative conscious listeners is because you're scared you're going to like it. <laughs> and if you like it, it is backed by a 10-year warranty. Again, free shipping and returns, free in-home setup, an old mattress removal. That's always a pain in the neck. You're going to love Purple. And right now, our listeners will get a free Purple pillow with the purchase of this mattress. So everyone gets this 100-night free risk trial, but you get a free pillow. And I'm telling you, the pillow is very, very much a solid value. It's in addition to the great free gifts they're offering site-wide. But here's what I need you to do. The offer has changed. Don't um, Go to the website to learn more, but not for the promo code. I need you to text, just text Daniel to 474747. The only way to get this free pillow is to text Daniel to 474747. Again, that is D-A-N-I-E-L to 474747. Thank you all for listening. God bless. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. 